All right, you ready for this? Ready. This is Tom Salemi, Editorial Director of Device Talks. Welcome to this week's episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We're going to do things a bit differently this week. My podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, the Executive Editor of Life Sciences here, will not be joining me. Instead, I will have a one-on-one conversation with Nadim Yored. Nadim is the CEO of CVRX. He is the past chair of Advamed, so he brings a great deal of uh, perspective to the conversation. We'll talk to Nadim about his path into medtech, about his decision to join a startup. It's kind of a a harrowing conversation, but uh, worked out well for him. And we'll talk about how CVRX has uh, navigated some some huge but uh, somewhat troubling areas within medtech. So Nadim is uh, a great guy to talk to. Lots of terrific perspective. I know you'll enjoy this conversation. In fact, I recorded this conversation back before the pandemic. So I felt obliged to reconnect with Nadim last month. We talked a few weeks ago to update on the uh, pandemic and to talk about some other more recent challenges facing not only medtech, but the world. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to run this conversation that I had with Nadim uh, about his career and his life and its entirety this week. And then next week, I will run the follow-up conversation I had. So this is sort of a a two-parter. I think it's totally worth it. Nadim's got lots of great thoughts and ideas, and I know you will enjoy these conversations. A few programming notes. Uh, Number one, I will be off next week, but we will be posting this podcast, or as that, that I mentioned earlier. Number two, we will not have a Device Talks Tuesday this coming Tuesday, but we'll be back on July 14th, Tuesday, July 14th, with a really intriguing uh, discussion about uh, startups, running startups in the pandemic. So we'll be talking with three CEOs from uh, the companies that we had identified as companies to watch. And we will have them on a panel. Chris Newmark and I will uh, will talk to them, not only about their companies and their, their specific challenges, but also about how they're operating startups during this time. Fundraising, regulatory, clinical, we'll try to hit upon all of that. So don't miss that conversation. You can go to devicetalks.com to register for that. We have a few other Device Talks weeklies coming online. So uh, keep an eye. We'll be announcing them through uh, our normal channels and also on this podcast. Now, let's get into this conversation with Nadim Yared, the CEO of CVRX. Well, Nadim Yared, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. So you have a you've been a busy, busy person in medtech, and we want to cover uh, not only what you've been doing for the industry in a broader sense with Advamed and other organizations, but also progress at CVRX, which is really one of those medtech stories we love to cover that are pursuing big ideas and in uh, are finally getting some traction. And we'd like to talk about that in a bit. But first, I'd like to find out a little bit about your journey into medtech. How did you uh, how did you find your way into this industry? Uh, I, I would say half luck, half destiny. Um, <laughs> when I was doing my engineering degree in Paris, uh, I was looking for an internship between my you know uh, 
the equivalent of the second and third year. And GE Medical has a good research center uh, not far from Paris in near Versailles. And I got an internship with them uh, to do image processing uh, for their next generation platform for CT scanners and MRI scanners. Very exciting development at the time. Uh, the other choice, you know, my, my uh, specialty uh, for my major when I was uh, studying engineering in Paris was mm -hmm. image processing, digital image processing. So I could either go into military, you know, space applications or medical at the time. Uh, and uh, with my background with Red Cross, my father being, you know, having been a doctor all of his life and uh, having grown up in this environment, I was more attracted to the medical space than the military space. And uh, there was also another reason. I was, uh, I'm, I'm, at the time, uh, I was a Lebanese citizen and working in the space or the defense industry in France, being a Lebanese citizen is hard, as you can mm -hmm. imagine. So uh, I ended up working with GE, doing my internship there, developed the first generation of their Advantage Workstation platform. And this was in 1992, so a long so time ago. Did that internship turn immediately into a position? And, and uh, if so, how did that, uh, how did that happen? Uh, yeah, so uh, at the time, GE was developing an independent console to uh, relieve the uh, time pressure on their CT scanners. So they wanted to provide a solution to their customers to allow more patient flow into these scanners. So all of the processing that was done on the CT scanner, they wanted to offload and put it in an independent workstation. So they have developed this hardware with four big screens, all dedicated hardware. And my internship was to develop a development environment to allow engineers to not have to have access to this big expensive hardware when they're testing their software. And I end up optimizing that software and making it so fast that it became the product itself. Uh, in a way, we were able to put on a desktop computer all of the processing power that required dedicated hardware through the optimization I did. And that became a product called Advantage Windows and later on renamed to Advantage Workstation. And with the success mm -hmm. of this product, GE decided uh, that they want to invest in it. And at the time I was doing my internships, I was a one-man show doing it, and they decided to keep me working on it during my engineering year. So I had a part-time agreement with GE to do this. And I graduated on July 9th, uh, 1993, but I was already a full-time employee with GE a month before that, continuing the developer of this work. So it, it kind of morphed from an internship a part-time job to a full-time job with GE. Was there any part of you that wondered if you were qualified for, for that sort of work? They give you a lot of responsibility as an intern. Was there any doubt? No, uh, at all. <laughs> Overconfident. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> I guess that's the secret. So you parlayed that and you became general manager of X-Ray in, in Europe for GE Healthcare, if I'm, if I'm getting your title correctly. Point is, you, you got into management. Uh, did you always, did this overconfidence sort of put you on a track to, to be a leader or did you see yourself as, as primarily being an engineer and, and remaining an engineer for a long time? You know, once an engineer, always an engineer, right? You know, uh, <laughs> uh, Tom, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because I love engineering. I love the work I was doing, but after a year and a half of 
doing what I was doing at GE as a full-time uh, employee, um, i.e. an engineer, um, I was promoted to become an engineering manager with 23 engineers reporting to me. And why why did they promote me so early? Uh, I Maybe I was very outspoken and I had big ideas and overconfident, right? Uh, but I was the youngest uh, in this team and I was managing all of those engineers. And I did this for a year and a half and then I took a year sabbatical to do my MBA at INSEAD. Uh, and then uh, GE funded all of this. And when I finished the MBA, I returned back to GE, became a product manager, then a segment manager, then general manager, you know, each one is one year apart. Uh, so I became a GM. I probably not twenty nine or thirty year old, so pretty young. Wow! How do you, um, as a leader now, how do you respond to someone who comes in uh, very confident in themselves? I don't want to say overconfident, but young, uh, confident, willing to express themselves. Do you see that as 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 traits you like in a person? Oh, I love it. Uh, I love people with edge. Uh, at GE, I was uh, mentoring a lot of uh, the high potential students who were, you know, uh, hired by GE or recruited by GE into their leadership program. Uh, and I, I love talents like this who are aggressive, who, you know, don't stop in front of obstacles, who think they can change the world. And many of them do end up changing the world. Many of those young engineers I coached over the years became CEOs in either medical or other industries. Are those traits common amongst engineers? Are they encouraged to be uh, not again? I don't want to say overcome. Are they encouraged to, to to be to be confident in their positions and their abilities and to sort of push forward or to be more part of a team? I, I would say not enough. Uh, edge uh, sometimes is annoying. Uh, many managers feel uh, threatened by engineers who have edge. They also feel threatened by engineers who've got a lot of passion. Uh, also, taking risks in larger organizations and larger teams sometimes is, uh, how do I say, discouraged by some of the middle managers. Uh, so uh, as a young engineer, someone has to have the luck to end up being in a good group who values edginess, who values you know creativity. Uh, and it's, it's hard these days. It's ha probably harder. Um, we, we, we tend to be a little bit more conservative once a company is established. Interesting. I guess it's if it's be true to yourself. I mean, just if your nature is to be edgy, then be edgy. But to I think to fake or force edgy probably doesn't work in your favor. Absolutely not. Faking it does not work. Yeah. No. So how did you move on from G Healthcare to uh, to Medtronic? That was in uh, in two thousand and two. Yeah. Long story. So I I you know when I was promoted to be a a segment manager at GE. Uh, uh, they gave me a business called the fluoroscopic CR business. So those are x-ray machines used during orthopedic or vascular surgery. And the GE business was number four behind uh, OEC, Philips, and Siemens, number one, two, and three. And under Jack Walsh, you have to be number one or number two. And if not, well, you have three choices. You can try to fix the business. Or if not, you'll have to sell it. Or if not, you'll have to close it. You have no, no, no other choices. And I was number four. I decided I want to be number two or number one. I don't want to fix it or I don't want to close it or sell it. Uh, the factory for that business was in Belgium. 
so I moved it to India to lower the cost. I changed the distribution in the United States from direct to indirect because those are surgical equipment, not radiological equipment. So it's a different sales force. Uh, I was concerned at the time when the, the product was distributed by, uh, you know, a channel that sells CTs and MRIs. My product was a tenth of a cost of a scanner. So, of course, they will sacrifice it in order to sell the CT, right? So they would not focus on the sale of a fluoroscopic CR. Doing this, you know, increased our sales by about 45% in the first year. So I felt pretty good with it, but we're still number four. So I decided we need to buy number one OEC Medical. And I did the case, made the case to Jeff Immelt and then to Jack Walsh. And mm -hmm. he approved it. So we did the acquisition. And when the acquisition happened, uh, Jeff Immelt, who was my boss, asked me to move from Paris to live in Salt Lake City and do the integration of OEC Medical, which I did. And while running uh, the integration for OEC Medical, we identified that we should acquire the navigation portfolio from Medtronic. And I ran this project until I was promoted to be the general manager of X-Ray in Europe for GE. So I let this out, moved back to Paris. The deal with Metro did not happen because the spine business under the leadership of Michael Demain felt that navigation is crucial to their spine business. And mm -hmm. they they decided no, they want to build it build it up and they loved the way I was doing, you know, the vision for that business inside GE. So they recruited me from GE to fix that business for them and grow it. And I accepted the challenge. I moved to Colorado Boulder. Uh, to do this, and that's how I joined Medtronic. Oh, interesting! Wow, yeah. So I didn't realize there was a connection with with Mike Demain there. Uh, I, I love that business, the navigation business. I felt we can do a lot of things. It was much smaller than the business I was running for GE, but at the same in the same token, my wife loved living in the Rockies. The experience we had in Salt Lake City was amazing. You know, the people, the 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 outdoors, the landscape, everything mm -hmm. about the U.S. we loved. So. That, you know, it, it played the, a, a portion of it, saying, you know, Michael Demain asked me to join him and then Art Collins and uh, I, you know, decided, okay, I'll do this. And it was really, I spent four and a half years running this business for Medtronic. Great experience. And then we came to your opportunity to join CVRX. So mm -hmm. were, you, were you at a point in your career when you were interested in being CEO of a startup? Was that part of your plan? Did, did you have a plan? Uh, no, not necessarily. I, uh, at the time I was wondering whether the navigation business fit in Medtronic or not. And we did some analysis and there was some discussions and a lot of projects, a lot of negotiation. At the end of this, um, I, I, you know, and, and through this, I met with some key investors and then the recruiter for one of those investors, Michael Kelly, uh, convinced me that it's the right time for me to be my own boss and run a business of my own. Hmm. And uh, it's interesting because uh, July 2006, I was being evacuated with our children from Lebanon by the U.S. Marines on the helicopter carrier called USS Nashville from Lebanon to Cyprus. In 2006. We were on a landing craft, 2006, July. And so we were vacationing in Lebanon. Oh. We left the kids in Lebanon. My wife and I went to Greece and, you know, war broke between Israel and Hezbollah after Hezbollah kidnapped seven soldiers from Israel. And then 
we had to be smuggled back into Lebanon to be with, the, with, the, with our children. And then we contacted the US embassy and the French embassy, and then we got evacuated, right? Uh, we were on that landing craft unit heading to the helicopter carrier when my phone rang at 10 p.m. in the evening in Lebanon. So I thought, you know, my parents are calling me to tell me something important. So I answered, it was Michael Kelly who was doing the recruitment for CVRX. <laughs> and he was talking to me, you know, like, imagine the scene. Here is this, you know, landing craft unit number eight. I was on it, water to my knees, my three-year-old daughter on my shoulders, and two helicopters over us, a hovercraft, two Zodiacs, plenty of marine. And we're going like crazy with flares in the air, heading to the helicopter carrier. Oh and he was like, uh, Nadim, I want to talk to you about CVRX. And I said, Michael, it's, you know, really not the time. <laughs> He said, Nadim, I know every single CEO I call them. They say not the time. Let me tell you. I was like, trust me, this is not the time. <laughs> Later on, when I told him the story, after we returned back to the United States, he happened to have had a, he's a West Point graduate in the, you know, and, and did a stint in the Navy. And he so loved us. So I became like his favorite candidate. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, wow, that that's quite an experience and uh the timing certainly is interesting that uh you get a phone call during that but also just in, <laughs> in that part of your life did, did having that experience sort of i don't know knock you one way or the other like saying you know what i'm 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 ready for something new for for a new challenge time is time is short uh you know i grew up during the war in lebanon and i was with the first uh, first uh, first aid teams of the red cross for six years during the you know wartime and I, I've, I've seen a lot in my life, but that experience was different in a way. That was, you know, I did everything to make sure that when my wife and I will get married and we'll have kids, we'll select a safe location, right? And try to grow them away from war. And here we are, you know, putting them in this war context just because we were spending vacation in Lebanon and Greece. I, I, I felt miserable that you know mm -hmm. that's sure. and when we were trying to get back to lebanon and we were in the greek islands so went to athens then to cyprus then to damascus in syria then found a syrian driver who would accept the risk for a lot of money to drive us under the fire to get us to lebanon uh it's a different experience when it's your children when it's you okay you know it's you know it's okay you like you feel like you're invincible but your children you feel that they're they know they're it's it was a horrendous experience. Let me put it this way. I, I I can only imagine. I mean, they're extensions of yourself. So yeah, you're you're you're. It's it. I can completely understand. And I have to. I would have to think that. I often talk with people about. Geez, you know, you faced a real critical decision in your life, whether to leave this stable company and go start this startup. And how did you really measure those risks? I have to think seeing what you've seen and, and having gone through that experience, the idea of joining a startup as a CEO probably didn't seem as scary as it might to, to some other people. Oh, yeah. No, uh, joining CVRX was not scary, scary <laughs> at all. I mean, we had great investors, great data, the platform, the technology, the market we're going after. That was a no-brainer. I, you know, I, I jumped into this uh, really, you know, with the... Uh, convince the board that I'm the right CEO uh, for this uh, in, in both feeds and no, absolutely no hesitation and no, no fears. <laughs> so it, let's talk about, about CVRX. I mean, it's one of those companies that started with, with a, a grand idea and, and you're still working on that, but it's been, it's, it's taken a while to, to get to the point of, of commercialization. Let's, let's talk about the early years because you, 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 we're treating using a device or developing a device that you hope would treat hypertension, pacemaker-like device. 
then sort of renal innervation came in and RDN came in and sort of seemed to change the landscape for that. What was that process like of, of joining this company? You had the cutting edge technology. You were the, the pioneer in this. And then suddenly, literally this flood of other companies with a rival technology and a rival approach or an alternative approach, rivals were too strong, came along to sort of upset, well, potentially upset what you were doing. Did it upset what you were doing? How did you counter sort of the renal innervation surge into hypertension? Uh, yeah, so let me start the story before I joined CVRX. Um, okay. The board at the time, uh, I'm talking 2002, 2003, uh, they invested in testing the hypothesis of our approach in canines, so in, in you know, experimental studies, in both heart failure and hypertension, and great results in both. But at the same time, in 2001, Medtronic got their first CRT, cardiac resynchronization therapy, approved late 2001, early 2002, so biventricular pacing, uh, to go after heart failure. So the company said, why should we compete with Medtronic? Let's focus our efforts in hypertension. And then after Medtronic, you know, Boston Scientific guidance at the time with Companion, et cetera. But little did the company know back then that those CRT devices will not address all of heart failure, all right? And the company started then focusing on hypertension with the early, you know, first immense studies and then jumped into a pivotal trial. And that's when I was hired to enroll and execute the pivotal trial. We made few mistakes on our own. And then also the advent of free reservation put us in a position where we had to change course in 2010. So let me start by our own mistakes. We jumped from a phase one trial in Europe, single arm to a randomized control trial in the United States with a pivotal trial. The device at the time, the first generation, was not ready for that. So when we ran the trial, we had great data, great efficacy data from the trial. But the device was pretty invasive. You know, two sites, electrode, big electrode, etc. 2003 and 2005, the company also did studies with, abla uh, not ablation, but surgical dissection of the renal nerves to try to test our hypothesis that our device would work even if the kidney is out of the loop. Interesting. So what we, what we I mean they, this was before I joined CVRX, what they did was surgically denervate kidneys in animal subjects and verify the impact on blood pressure reduction and then put our device in these subjects and then turn our device on and verify that we can still reduce our blood pressure despite the fact that the kidney is denervated. And then in another experiment, they put our device first, test it, then surgically denervate the dogs, put our device off, test it, and then turn our device on while the dog now was denervated and tested. And we noticed that surgical denervation dropped blood pressure by a couple of millimeter, while our device, we can easily drop by 15 to 20 millimeter in dogs. So there was no picture about the size effects. We did not think about doing a minimally invasive ablation solution because of those what we've seen in our data. And those data were published in 2005 and in 2007 in major manuscripts. Mm -hmm. uh, so 2009, the world started talking about RDN, and then the company did a first-in-man study, pretty good data. Then they did their randomized control study in Europe and Australia, good data. Then they were acquired by Medtronic, and they ran their pivotal trial. So fast forward to 2010, 
we just had an issue with our pivotal trial in regards to the invasiveness of, of our therapy, number one. Number two, everybody now, the hype, uh, everyone is talking about renal derivation. How do I position our therapy vis-a-vis -vis renal derivation? When I looked at the data from the Simplicity 2 uh, that RDN ran, there was a couple of glaring points that were visible to me, uh, but not to the general public about the data. I alerted our board about it. And I told our board, based on what I'm seeing and the trial design that is being rumored that Medtronic will be running, mm -hmm. I'm expecting that Medtronic will fail their trial. And if they do, it will hurt us. So my board was like, why? I mean, it's, you know, if it, if it hurts them, it'll be good for us. I said, no, 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 it will hurt us because the patient's funnel will flow. There'll be a bad reputation about device treatment for hypertension for a while. And the market may become toxic in terms of investments. At the same time, J&J &J was a serious investor inside CVRX. And from J&J's perspective, they really wanted to go after heart failure. That's why they did the initial investment in CVRX. So we got this confluence of all of the elements where we understand that in heart failure, there's a big section, almost 60% of the patients cannot be treated with CRT devices. J&J wants to go into heart failure at the time, I'm talking 2010. Renal generation could, if it's successful, it would limit our attractiveness in the hypertension space. And if it fails, it would limit the attractiveness of the space itself. So you add all of this together, we decided let's double down, let's develop a minimal invasive solution with our own technology and go after heart failure. And that's what we decided mm -hmm. to do. And we started the human trials in heart failure in 2011. We did a first image study. And then in 2012 to 2015, we did the phase two randomized control study. In 2016 to 2019, we did the phase three, you know, the pivotal trial that led to the approval a couple of months ago. What sort of efforts go into steering the ship like that into, into a completely different application? I mean, it was, it was part of your heritage. You weren't completely pivoting into a, in something you hadn't seen before, but uh, did that involve a change in, in, in employees and workforce and redesigning the, 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 how the company functioned? Or was it merely just taking everyone and leading them into a different direction? Uh, the, the, you know, the, the biggest change was shifting our focus with our key uh, clinical advisors we have. So mm -hmm. while when you were running the hypertension trial, I had a weekly or bi-weekly calls with our hypertension steering committee. When we got into 2011, we shifted into a heart failure steering committee with a different set of physicians. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the physicians happened to be the same, like Dr. Bill Abraham was on both committees, uh, but many of the members of the heart failure steering committee uh, were pure heart failure doctors. And uh, that's when we start getting involved with them on a, on a weekly or biweekly basis. You know, we do not have a chief medical officer at CVRX. We rely on our external advisors to fill the gap. Why do you, why do you go that route? Uh, it's a choice. It's a choice. Uh, controversial uh, choice. Uh, there are mm -hmm. advantages of having an in-house chief medical officer. You know, when a doctor talks to another doctor, they, uh, they have more credibility than us. Uh, on the other hand, also a doctor competes with another doctor and we don't. Um, so, hmm. you know, it's the, in that, instead of that competition of opinions, then uh, we'll have a company that's really willing to listen, actively listen 
to the advice of physicians. Uh, but it takes discipline, uh, meaning we do not take any major decision without convening our panel of experts, so the steering committee. And we do listen to them. Sometimes we may not agree with them, and we discuss, and we come back with data. They'll come back with data until we end up in a place where we're all agreeing on the strategy. Mm -hmm. But we do listen. Uh, we uh, we actively seek their feedback and implement it. And I would think if you're a CEO with a CMO, it would be easier to sort of let the CMO manage those relationships, and and you would go focus on something else. This, I guess, requires you really to to meet with those doctors and and, and really talk to them and interact with them and understand what they're saying. Yes, it does. I enjoy it, actually. I, I really enjoy it. And I had to learn statistics. I bought, you know, statistics for dummies, books, and, you know, statistics in a nutshell and stuff like this to try to figure out what they're talking about. I had to learn cardiology, you know, the entire series of Braunwald's books on cardiology. I had to go through it. Uh, but at the same time, it's very interesting. Now I can sit down and have really interesting conversations with those key opinion leaders in cardiology. So in 2016, you enrolled your first two patients in what was your pivotal trial, the BEAT-HF trial. Am I saying that right? Mm -hmm. And you had uh, received positive data this year. What was that? What was, well, I don't want to summarize your entire trial experience in, in, in heart failure in, in those three years, but is, is this the trial we should be talking about? Is this the one that really sort of launched CVRX forward, uh, the one where you received positive data this year? Yes, absolutely. This is the trial. Um, in uh, April of 15, uh, so this is a year before we enrolled the patients, uh, we designed a trial uh, and then FDA issued a guidance called the Expedited Access Pathway, which later FDA renamed into Breakthrough Designation or Breakthrough Devices. Uh, this Expedited Access Pathway guidance from FDA gave us a lot of uh, new tools that we could use. So we immediately, uh, immediately. Uh, so we're talking here early May of 2015, we submitted a request to the FDA that our product should be designated as a breakthrough device. And we got that designation. I think we may be the first product ever to receive this designation from FDA hmm. back then. Uh, and as soon as we received it, uh, we took our trial design that we've finished a couple of months earlier uh, and we reshaped it totally into uh, two distinct phases of the trial, a pre-market phase and a post-market phase. The pre-market phase will lead to a first approval and the post-market phase will lead to a second approval. So think about it as two shots at goal with increasing amplitude or impact. Uh, the initial reaction from FDA in August of 2015, when we met with them to share with them our idea, uh, was uh, an initial, uh, I would say, uh, discomfort with our approach on the statistics. Uh, they pushed back on us. They said, well, you have to go back and come back with a more serious proposal. So we escalated it within FDA. And it 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 happened that we were maybe dancing faster than the music at CVRX, mm -hmm. meaning the expedited access pathway guidance had not yet been implemented in FDA and mm -hmm. the training has not happened. So we were the guinea pig to a certain extent and we used this um, experiment with FDA to allow FDA to figure out what they need to do internally. So we were learning as we go and I put a picture often when I share this experience, you know, those race cars when you do a pit stop in a Formula One to change the, the wheels. Well, in our mm -hmm. case, 
we're changing the wheels without stopping the car. We're still racing at the same time, <laughs> changing the, the, the wheels and the tires. Anyway, so uh, it was an interesting experience with FDA. To their credit, the leadership of FDA embraced this very strongly, and they really wanted to demonstrate that this new pathway has an impact. Uh, so mm -hmm. they were willing to listen. Now they did not lower the bar. They did not make it easier for us. It still took us six months of negotiation until the trial was fully approved in April of 16. Uh, and I tell you, when, when we first met in August, when I came back that weekend, I told my board, this is a non-starter. FDA is not listening. That was my impression of the first intense meeting with them. And it took us until April when not only we figured out that FDA is listening, actually FDA was helping us think about different ways of you know, strengthening our product design. And for a while uh, during this period, we had a weekly call with FDA where we had our physician and their physicians, our statistician and their statisticians each had their own call and, and thinking about, okay, how can we address this specific problem and so forth. It was a very intense period. And that, I think that experience has helped the FDA of setting the, the stage and the tone inside of FDA of how do they approach, you know, trial designs for breakthrough devices. Uh, and the trial design that we end up with uh, became, I think, a test case for FDA. And I've seen a slide mm -hmm. that looks like our trial design been used by FDA in so many uh, opportunities. Uh, initially, they use our own colors, and I've asked SVA, can you use the blue color from FDA and not the green color from CVRX, please? It's just as a joking, <laughs> right? But seriously, this this was a collaborative effort between FDA and us, so they owned this design as, as much as we did. And I've seen other companies recently using a very similar trial design. The most recent one I've seen is Livanova. They are going after heart failure, and their trial design uses the same approach that we innovated with FDA on in 2016. So this is the trial. We finished Brilliant. the pre-market phase of this trial. We got the first approval, and now we're continuing in the post-market phase, seeking the second approval. I want to get into that in a moment and, and, and talk about your, your role at Avamed, but I'm just curious, you were, you were uh, uh, leading Avamed, you were advocating for the medtech industry, obviously discussing the FDA and its interactions with the industry. How do you did were you ever concerned that your your leadership role, any comments you had to make about the FDA, perhaps even critical comments, would affect your relationship or CVRX's relationship with with the agency? Oh yeah, it's always a concern. Um, and during my tenure, we're also negotiating uh, negotiating the Medufa user fee program. There were some contentious between FDA and us about you know maybe FDA is shifting back their culture into the you know some of the old demons back then, and I had to play sometimes the role of raising concerns that our members, our 400 members at Advamed were saying. So I have to raise these to FDA. Uh, but to their credit, FDA never held me responsible or tried to punch back on me or on my company in this regard. Um, yeah, yeah. So from that perspective, uh, if anybody has any concern about becoming chairman of Advermed or taking a leadership role uh, with the association, it, 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 it did not hurt CVRX. It did not hurt me. Um, I can say maybe to, to, it, it's, uh, it's convoluted, right? Because FDA knew that I was playing this role at Advermed. And they knew that it was not me being uh, wanting to be critical of FDA. I was just relaying the voice I'm hearing 
from you know the industry uh, at the same time it gave me credibility uh, meaning I, I became a known entity to FDA right it doesn't mean that they lowered the bar or they gave me any preferred uh, uh, treatment right uh, compared to other companies but when I said something FDA could not just simply ignore it they had to look into it because they knew I was credible so that credibility factor could have played a positive role for CVRX in our negotiations with FDA. And how are you set for financing? I think by my count, you've raised roughly $250 million, or am I, am I not sure? Am I not close with that uh, as to money raised from venture capitalists? Uh, you may be off by 100 or so. Uh, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it has been an expensive journey. Here, yeah, there. who's counting, right? No, it has been an expensive, 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 expensive journey. I cannot reiterate this enough. Um, uh, developing a platform technology like this that will be applicable in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction today, but in the future in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, in resistant hypertension, possibly in chronic kidney disease, in arrhythmia, and so forth, takes money, takes investment, takes time. It's, that's the unfortunate part of things. Does it still have to? I mean, if, if you were to start a company like this today, does it still require... 200 300 million dollars because that, that would seem to be a, a game changer or 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 uh, that would be a real red flag i think for for most venture capitalists out there or or are we is that is that obsession about the dollars kind of move move past us? i think pma product lines would require at least 100 million dollar of investment to get to the you know to the approval mm -hmm. line but the approval line is not the exits if you look at the state of uh, today's economy and the strategy of most uh, consolidators in our space. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, you develop a cool technology and you'll get bots. So the exit for the VCs will be sooner and faster. Uh, now it's longer. Not only the company has to prove the technology, so they retire the technical risk, they also have retired the clinical risk, they have to retire the regulatory risk, they have to retire the reimbursement risk, and they have to retire the adoption risk and the market development. So until we get to this point, a lot of money has to be invested in the company. And that's the sad state of our affairs today. It's driven by the, uh, I would say, the, the shifting role of the consolidators. And uh, the end result of this is that most of the venture money these days is going into uh, the second, uh, the, 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 the last two portion of what I was just saying here, which was the reimbursements. Uh, risk retirements and the adoption of risk retirements. A lot of VC money is being spent on developing sales forces to raise the revenue level to a certain extent where the acquisition will become accretive to a consolidator or to become an IPO candidate. That money that's being raised by VCs to do this commercial development is not being spent or invested in novel technologies or innovation. Mm -hmm. When I looked at some statistics from, I did this analysis with Aaron Sadowski, I think I did this in 2014, 2015. So you look at the amount of money it used to take in average. So this is a combined data from 510Ks and PMA product line. From inception to exit from, from a VC's perspective, in 2004, the average was $32 million and it was five years. By 2014, the average was 74 million and the timeline extended to 11 years. 
And that's an average. And now remember, 90% of the products are 510Ks, if mm-hmm. not more. Okay. So those are the numbers that created the concern for many of the VCs. So the traditional VC model where you raise $100 million and you invest in 20 companies doesn't work anymore. And that's why we're seeing those big, uh, large cap, large funds becoming staples uh, in our industry, you know, like NEA, uh, if you think about it. And we're seeing Deerfield, we're seeing KCK and others. So they, they have, they can swing a large portfolio. They have a staying power more than 10 years and they can do these PMA developments. Now, the return justifies the investment. It just takes time and it takes money. How does the CVRX story play into, into those concerns about MedTech? Do you see this now that you have approval as, as being a, a positive example? Or is, or is the money you raised, you think, going to be adding to the concern? Has it added to the concern about the sector? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not worried about the example we're setting. Um, I think our product is one of those unicorns where, um, you know, every single company and every single technology, they always love to talk about the billion dollar market potential. But when you think about our therapy, uh, we have the potential here of making the single largest product platform in the medtech space period, uh, much larger than anything else that exists. Uh, you know, our initial market potential right now is twice the market potential of CRT devices and we're alone. Um, so, you know, just adding the numbers, it's, it's staggering. So uh, a product platform like ours requires a lot of investment to develop the full potential. You cannot cut corners, but not all products would require these amount of investment, these large trials, these expensive R&D development and so forth. So how do your investors exit CVRX? What's your, your plan? Do you have to make this an IPO company? Uh, our investors are not focusing on exit. That's the good news for CVRX. You know, we're, we're in here to build a company, a sustainable enterprise. And do you think you'll have to raise any more money or do you have what you need? Oh, oh yes. We always raise money, whether private or public is a question mark, but <laughs> we, we need to raise money. <laughs> it's, it, it, was, it seems it's never stopped. Right? Honor, yeah. <laughs> I forgot who I'm talking to. I'm talking you may to ask Jeff the Bezos end. the same about Amazon. Do you need to keep, keep raising money for Amazon? And he would say yes. So, uh, you know, some platforms like this would require a lot of investment to unlock the potential. But we're talking here, you know, a huge market potential at the end. Great. And final topic, I, I, I'm glad we're spending a lot of time on, on yourself and on CVRX, but, but we've talked about AdvaMed, uh, and you, you talked a bit about what your, your experience leading that entity. What was your, what was your takeaway, though, from, from your, 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 lead, your year leading that group? And give us, if you would, just sort of a, a state of MedTech on a, a more a broader basis. You talked a bit about the private side of things, but how does the, the sector overall uh, feel in, from, your, from your point of view? Um, yeah, uh, my first reaction is uh, it, it was an amazing experience. I end up, uh, ha- you know, interacted with a lot of amazing people uh, within Advamed, uh, around the board and the member companies of Advamed, uh, but also um, paradoxically uh, in Washington, D.C., you know, we hear a lot of criticism, but uh, my experience here working with staffers and politicians from all sides was an amazing experience. Um, I would if I can do it again, I will do it again in a heartbeat. Uh, the The state of the industries, uh, in a nutshell, uh, is the following. We are 
currently in probably one of the best states our industry has ever been into in terms of future prospects. If there was a golden time to invest in the medtech space, today is this time. And you know what they say, right? You don't skate where the puck is, you skate to where the puck is going to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and here's the same situation. We have removed a lot of obstacles that flattened our return on investment over the year, past years. But when you look at the projected return on investment in future years, it is going to be amazing. You still have a lot of cheap stocks right now in the medtech space and a lot of private companies that you can invest in right now and a lot of new technologies that you can develop with novel pathways, including the breakthrough devices by FDA and novel pathway for reimbursement, including what they just announced regarding the breakthrough devices as well. That's the time to go into the medtech space. This is the time to invest. Now, I started feeling this, you know, the, the turn tide, uh, you know, the tide turning about three or four years ago, and I started talking with a little bit more of optimism. Some of my colleagues were critical of me. Some of my peers were critical of me. Uh, they said, Nadim, mm-hmm. if, if we're too optimistic in here, how could people come and help us remove these obstacles? Um, it's fair criticism. I, I take it. I accept it. Uh, you know, maybe I'm an over-optimist. I'm a glass half full guy type of a guy. Uh, but at the same time, mm-hmm. it is real. And we've seen these trends changing. We've seen, you know, many of the large cap and medium cap companies going up. We've seen some phenomenal IPOs done in the med tech space. So it is turning. And this is the time to invest now, not yesterday and not tomorrow. All right. Well, that is a great way to end this conversation. It's been a true pleasure, Nadim, to get to know you and to, to hear your story. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Again, we'll have my second conversation with Nadim next week, in addition to another great interview that I'm working on. So please do tune in. You can find me on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi. You can find me on Twitter at MedTechTom. You can also send me an email. I am tsalemi at wtwhmedia.com. Of course, my podcast partner is available as well. You can find him on LinkedIn is Chris Newmarker. He is on Twitter at Newmarker as in a new marker. And his email is cnewmarker at wtwhmedia.com. Finally, please share this podcast. Please give us a ranking on this podcast. If you do share this podcast on social media, tag Chris and myself. We'd love to be part of that conversation. And finally, don't forget to subscribe. That way you'll get future podcasts sent directly to you. It's very heartening to see how many people listen to this podcast the minutes it comes out. It's uh, it's great to have people subscribe to this. They get it sent right to their phones or whatever they're using to listen to podcasts. That's it, folks. Again, tune in next week. We'll have part two of my conversation with Nadim. And don't forget to check out devicetalks.com for information about our upcoming Device Talks Tuesdays. Take care, everyone. Have a happy fourth and a terrific weekend. And as Chris Newmarker says, stay safe.